Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends 2023. I'm Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we're very lucky to have so many jazz musicians and singers who have performed most of their lives. Each year, Jazz 88 honors a new class of legends with a concert and this radio special. During this show, we'll hear from previously recorded interviews and a live concert which took place April 2, 2023 at the Minnesota History Center's 3M Theater. The featured Minnesota Jazz Legends are accordionist and educator Denny Momberg, guitarist, bassist, and educator Joan Griffith, composer, saxophonist, and educator Douglas R. Ewart, and world-renowned traditional jazz pianist and clarinetist the late Butch Thompson. This show is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and produced by Jazz 88 KBEM. Our first Minnesota jazz legend is music educator, arranger, and accordionist, Denny Momberg. Denny's been actively performing throughout the Twin Cities since his teens, working in premier showrooms with notable groups such as the Camelot Singers and the Golden Strings. He also found his love for teaching music in the Minneapolis public school system for decades. Denny's mastery of the accordion has been a source of happiness for everyone who has performed with him and everyone who's heard him. Ladies and gentlemen, Denny Momberg. Just a minute about what was like growing up in your household. I can tell you this, that um, my daddy was playing all the time. He was on, uh, in the late 40s, he was staff member at WCCO Radio, playing in the orchestra there, um, and on WDGY. And then he would go teach uh, in the afternoons when kids got home from school, and then he'd go play until the wee small hours of the morning and come home and do the same thing all over again the next day. My dad was the, the, the most wonderful accordion player you'd ever want to hear. My very first gig, I was 15 years old, I remember, or 16. And What I, instrument were you playing? Accordion. And uh, he had me over, go over to uh, Minnehaha Academy and play two songs for the homecoming. And I replayed songs of the day. I did the Tonight, Tonight from the West Side Story. And I played um, the Days of Wine and Roses. Was anybody there for that? <laughs> <laughs> so, just you, no band, just you no, on accordion at 15 years old? That that's, was brave. That took a lot of guts, right? Well, it takes a lot of guts to do this, too, I want to tell you that. <laughs> Then after that, I went into the service, and I continued playing in the service. I went through basic training in Texas, and then I went to Mississippi for schooling. And then somebody in the office thought to themselves, you know, this guy here from Minnesota, I bet he'd like to go to Alaska. I ended up there for three years. Were you still playing an instrument? Absolutely. I was playing accordion up in Anchorage. I was playing at the officer's club. 
with a little trio. Then you finally get out of the service? Four years in, and, and okay. that was the end of that. I came back here, and uh, I got married rather soon, within a month, I think. Then I, I worked in a brokerage shuffling stock papers around, and I thought to myself, uh, there's got to be something that I really like to do, and, and it's always been music. And my dad was pushing me, you know, you might want to think about getting into teaching. A lot of his musician friends were teachers in the daytime. So, well, I went to Normandale. What uh, age are you now? Oh, 22. I was taking piano as my major instrument uh, two years. One day I was walking down the hallway at the college, and I heard this voice, Albert, get in here. I looked, and it was the band director. He said to me, you see that bass sitting in the corner over there? I want you to take it home and learn it because you learn the piano so fast and you'll play in the band next year. And that's how I got onto the bass. And then I ended up majoring on the bass at the University of Minnesota. You did! With a piano major also. It's funny, I started playing bass right away because I knew so many of the changes of songs that I had already learned. So I just fell into it and I was playing for the next 30 years bass with my dad. I, I was his son, but I was also a fellow musician. And so we would go out and we'd just have a lot of fun on the gigs. It was great. Were you gigging when you were going to college? All the way through. I was. <laughs> I played two shows I did at the Chanhazen. Unheard of today, I bought, I bought a house in my third year of college. Yeah, was, and, and I was able to sign a contract to teach in the Minneapolis public schools two months before I graduated. You've done some recording studio work as well. Mm -hmm. One was a hot and crusty one, <laughs> live at the fireside. You know, that was recorded over uh, two Monday nights, I believe. And this one, where, where did you record the Strutting Out, out with that Charmin? Was terrarium. You have Steve Pacall on the string bass, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Who and drummer Nathan Norman. Yep, and you also had Doug Haney. Yeah, on sax and tracks. Yep. All right, let's talk about this one—the solo accordion. Solo CD. accordion, yeah. It's got some accordion classics in there. The accordion you can play, you know. Winniowski, you can play Mendelssohn violin concertos. It's all there. And then you can turn around and play polkas. It's a marvelous instrument in that regard. You promised me you'd come back. I promised to wait. But I was a little too lonely. And you were a little too late. This is Minnesota jazz legend 2023 Denny Momberg. Once I started teaching, I landed a gig at the Camelot, where I played six nights a week for five years on bass. And you're about how old right now? 26, I guess. I would teach all day long, and then I would play Monday through Saturdays, two shows a night. We had six singers in a four-piece band. Yes, how fun Jimmy is that? Jimmy Benack, Denny Schultes on saxophone. Russ Moore played drums for quite a while. Um, Lorna Michelson played piano in the, the front bar. Here you are. You're married. You have a house. You've got a degree. You work in the different clubs. You're at yeah. the Camelot. And do you ever say at this young age, uh, what else is there? Um, I, actually, you know, I was really wrapped up in my teaching throughout all of that. I was in middle school and uh, I moved into high school. And then you did the high school level of teaching? Central high school, yeah. Okay. I did band there okay. and orchestra. Uh, I followed Jimmy Hamilton in. Before I started teaching at Central, Jimmy and I played together through the summer at the IDS Tower. He taught me a lot. Was there a student body that stands out in your mind as ones that you really got to see the light in their eyes turn on when you were teaching them? My years at Central, my years at 
South High, 22 years there. Every day was a marvelous day. I mean, it was, I loved teaching. I loved going in, I loved the kids. Uh, you could just see the progress. We, we had a great band there at South. And I know that one of the songs you recorded with that band was a theme song for your brother Al. It's called The Rag. I'll never forget it. The kids bit into the program. They, they wanted to excel and... We just worked hard, and we had a lot of fun while we were doing it. Jose James, uh, he was a former student, and uh, he went to New York. That didn't work out. Uh, he came back just as I was retiring in 2004, and he asked me, do you suppose we could get something going at a, in a club, you know, because I had worked with him at, when he was at South High. And we ended up with a gig at Fireside. And we entered him in the Thelonious Monk Vocal Jazz Contest, and he was in the 10 people that were selected to participate in the contest. This is the Jose James we're hearing on national radio. Yeah, so, so Jose, he did very well in the, the contest. He wasn't the winner. In my opinion, he should have been. I was there. Jose went off to London, and that's where everything started for him. And then when he left, that's when Charmin came on for the next 12 years. And are we back at Fireside in yep. Richfield now? Yep, that was a great gig. Were you also doing some jobbing dates? Well, actually, we played there on Monday and Wednesday nights, which left the weekends open to, to, to continue jobbing. How did you end up at St. Olaf? Was it after uh, South High? I, yeah, I had retired in 04 and thinking, I'm retired. No, yeah. No, no. And within a month, I got a call from Paul Nemisto and Tim Marr wanting to know if I would consider directing the Norseman Band the following year. I did that for a whole year. A wonderful band, wonderful college. Worked with Tim Marr down there. Two or three years later, he decided to take a leave. So I covered the St. Olaf Band for one quarter. And that's one of the finest bands in the country. It was, it was intimidating, to say the least. Oh, I mean, I really had to study my scores. Was that your last gig then as far as being a teacher, and how long did that last? That was 2009, I believe. And then um, I went back to South for just two months or so in 2014. They needed somebody to fill in for a few weeks, so I did. Is it like riding a bike? Can you just get back up on the, the, uh, <laughs> the seat and just start pedaling away? Yeah, kind of. I think you can, yeah. This is Minnesota jazz legend 2023 Denny Momberg. Your dad, you said you did some work with him, yep. and it was a, it's really a cool thing to be a, a family member and a musical colleague. Mm -hmm. Did you have many opportunities to play with him throughout your life and his life? Na his name is Larry Momberg, obviously. Right. And oh, I played with it all, all the way through until 2008, and then he was diagnosed with cancer. And he asked me to start covering his jobs on accordion because he knew I, I could play. What he didn't realize was how rusty I was, <laughs> having not played as much as I should have been, mainly just playing bass. And I, I got busy and I ended up uh, playing with Cliff Runzel on the Golden Strings for the last five years that Cliff was alive. And that was a marvelous experience too. And the guys, of course, in the group were great. And influencers. You yeah. mentioned Oscar Peterson. You mentioned John Pizzarelli. Um, 
Oscar, of course, he's the piano player of the decade of the century, whatever you want to you want to go with that. John Pizzarelli, it's just a, a marvelous player, number one. He's funnier than can be. He has a great show, and he's a really nice guy. He came into South one time with this trio and did a con I had talked to him a year before, and he says, the next time you hear me coming into town, give me a call and maybe we can do it, you know. And he came in and did a concert with Ray Kennedy, his brother Martin on bass, and John. And all he wanted was a nice Italian lunch for my wife and my mother-in-law, which we had after the concert. That led to the next time John was in town, we had him out to my mother-in-law's for dinner. My mother-in-law's an Italian, fiery Italian. She told me when I was going down to pick him up, tell him to bring his guitar if he wants to be fed. So I get down to the hotel, John comes out, Martin comes out, John does not have his guitar. And I said, Nona said that you're not gonna eat unless you bring your guitar along and play for your supper. So he went back in the hotel and got his guitar. Did he really? Yeah. And we hopped in the car. I had thrown my bass in the back for Martin. Uh -huh. I had my accordion and I played with John and Martin Pizzarelli for an hour and a half in my mother-in-law's living room. Yeah, it was amazing. And we've been friends ever since. It's been 25 years now. And Do you have a high point in your life that comes to mind when I say that to you? There's so many. Um, oh, wow. I've had many, many fun gigs um, with Clyde Anderson. All those dates with Cliff. Cliff Brunzel? Yeah. Yes. Cliff and I are on the Wall of Fame at South High. We're the only musicians on there. Yeah, it's pretty special. I just love the musicians that I work with. I mean, there's... Musicians are so special and it makes no difference where you go in the country. They're just great folks. I've been very fortunate in my life. I'm just lucky. I was lucky where I was teaching. I was lucky to run into the students that I had there. You know, you have a good run in a high school for maybe five, maybe 10 years where everything's really great. I had a run of 35 years. I mean, it was just, uh, I used to say, if I ever go get up in the morning and drive in and I don't want to go in, I'm going to quit. It never happened. Do you have a time in particular where you feel like you had a challenge you had to overcome? I've had some students that have, have, have died. That had a big impact on me. It's so sad because there's you can see the, a wonderful future ahead for them. And some of them were very, very talented in, in all ways. Yes, that's, uh, a, that's a challenge. Losing a daughter is sad. We lost a daughter. Uh, age 10. She had Tay-Zax. It's a disease. She had, lacked an enzyme in her brain. There's no cure. Uh, very difficult to get through and, and over. So, you know, life is life. Do you have words of advice for the up-and-coming jazz mm, musician? I would tell the kids, find your passion and go for it. Be full aware if you're going into the music business, it is rugged. Especially these times, it's not like it was. But you know, struggling is not such a bad thing compared to having some career that you hate. <laughs> Danny Momberg.
Our next Minnesota jazz legend is recording artist Joan Griffith. She's best known for her work as a guitarist composer of Brazilian music, although she hails from the Midwest. She plays upright bass and mandolin, offering her deep musicianship to any group she performs with. Joan has performed with numerous celebrities throughout her career, and she's even been the featured soloist with the Minnesota and South Dakota orchestras. Joan also brought her talents as a musician and interviewer to Jazz 88 for many years as host of the show Talking About Jazz. Help me welcome to the stage, Joan Griffith. about what it was like in your household that inspired you? Well, yeah, I had a really musical upbringing, and it's interesting because neither of my parents uh, were professional musicians at all. My my dad was in the Air Force, and then my mom was a stay-at-home mom and stuff, but, you know, I grew up in a house where music was valued. You know, I took piano lessons until I was in eighth grade, and I just did not have a teacher that inspired me at all. And so I said, Mom, I got to stop piano, but I had a plan. You had to replace it with something. So I said, you know, I'll take guitar lessons or take clarinet lessons. It was like, well, okay. Um, And then my brother himself uh, is a professional pianist. And so he and I grew up playing piano forehand just for fun. Our idea of a good time was to hear something on the TV, oh, Mission Impossible or Peanuts or whatever. And then we'd run to the piano and see who could play it first. How old were you when you were doing this? I don't know, 10, 11, 12. My mom loved to play the piano, but she wouldn't play it for us. She was like kind of shy about it. She'd be ironing and then she'd put down the iron and go over to the piano and just play the song she just heard on the radio. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I thought all moms could do that. (laughs) So, of course, I should be able to do that, too. And my dad loved jazz records. We had Ella Records. And more than anything, it was just like that was something that was part of what we kind of did as a group. Obviously, resonated with guitar. I picked up first the ukulele because my dad had one laying around the house. and, And I just just had fun looking at the chord symbols in the book and playing cowboy songs. And and I didn't really move over to the guitar until later. From the very beginning, it was like guitar um, was my thing. And then I discovered bossa nova. What age? I was 14, I think. Well, that's when 64 is when um, that Gets Go Bell to, you know, the Girl From Ibanema album. And my mom was actually driving me to a softball game. I hear Joao Gilberto playing the, that beautiful way that the bossa nova guitar is played. And I'm like, that's how guitar should be played. I don't even know what that is. After the game, I made my mom take me right to the record store to get that album. And I spent the whole rest of the summer just figuring out how he played that by ear. And there weren't any books. And so actually, sort of by the end of the summer, I had found a, a voice. Were you able to play for any functions you during know, your high school years? I was, and that was another miracle. The junior high had a jazz band. You know, I went to the music store and got an electric guitar so I could play, in, you know, and so I just did this Freddie Green just strum, strum, strum thing and learned all those chords too and all that cool swing music. I kept playing it in, in high school in the jazz band. Um, but the fun thing I got to do, we had musicals too at our, at our high school. I played clarinet for the My Fair Lady, but then I played guitar for West Side Story. Right. But we did it with two pianos, upright bass and drums and guitar. 
My friends in high school, we formed a, an actual jazz quintet. Um, we played gigs. That was fun. I played guitar in that, and we had a piano player and drums and bass and alto. And, you know, so a lot of different stuff. But I was also singing in the choir, which I have to have a little shout-out to Mr. Bernard. Um, <laughs> he's the guy who was playing the piano, too, for West Side Story. But, but my best musical experience, by far, really, in high school, and maybe even in college, was singing in his choir. So, you know, you learn a lot doing lots of different kinds of music and, you know, different ways to be involved in music. So it just knocked me out. You know, wow. Minga says you got to get hit in your soul. Yeah. And, you know, and I kept getting hit in my soul with all that music. And so then you're in college. Which mm -hmm. college? I went to the University of Missouri in Kansas City uh, in 1968. Uh, there were only three schools in the whole country that you could study guitar for, for credit in college. I had no clue as what a person would do with a guitar degree. So I just went there because it wasn't so far away from home. And it was a very old school, you know, four years of theory. You take conducting, you take all of that. So yeah. now you're, what, about 22 and you're just getting out of college? <laughs> and uh, do, do you stay in Kansas City? I did stay in Kansas City because I have made some very good friends that were in the school with some really great musicians. We decided at some point that it would be more fun to be in a band than be a waitress. Let's not do jazz, you know, let's do Top 40 cover. Thinking about what we had in the band, I said, well, wouldn't it be more to the point if somebody played bass? <laughs> you know, I mean, you need a bass player, right? Right. And I said, well, how hard can that be? It's only got four strings. And so I went to the pawn shop and got an electric bass and an amp for 30 bucks. I imagine that was just very attractive sound. I love that band, but I still had in my mind, I'd kind of like to have a classical guitar gig of some sort. I picked up the Musicians Union newspaper. Little notice in there from a flute player in Arkansas who said that what he needed was a guitar player who could play lute and knew a lot of popular styles. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Is this ad for me? Anyway, I ended up taking this job in Arkansas and then moving to Fayetteville. And I stayed there for eight years, um, touring with him and then just gigging in the scene. Uh, in, in Arkansas, too, as a jazz player, so. You wouldn't think that there would be a kind of a great scene <laughs> in Northwest Arkansas, but at that time there was. There was a couple really, really great pianists. Uh, um, a guy named Frank Stagnita who had come there with his wife from New York, and he was a really world-class bebop guy. So the gigs I'd play with him, we had a couple little jazz joints that we played, but he also played, you know, Happy Hour at the Hilton. <laughs> and so I'd be playing with him. And you're playing bass. Yes, and it was going to work better if I played upright because it oh, was yeah. more classy. But yeah, that's when I first started playing upright, just because I wanted to be part of the jazz scene. I love the bass. Uh, I actually love the bass since I was, uh, you know, like seven or eight years old and we would go to the movies and they play music ahead of time. And I always loved the sound of the bass. I think it was Les Brown and his band of renown. And whoever mixed the, that band, I think, had to be the bass player because all you could hear is boom, ba-boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, I love that. This is Joan Griffith, 2023 Minnesota jazz legend. I had moved from Kansas City, but I still would go up there and play gigs from time to time because 
there was a scene there. And my friends Carol Comer and Diane Gregg started the Women's Jazz Festival in Kansas City. And they asked me if I would come up and be playing in a, a house quartet for jam sessions. I got to meet a lot of the great Kansas City players. Uh, that was really my jazz college. Uh, we were doing a jam session at the Crown Center Hotel. You know, and people like Jane Ivor Bloom would come in and Marion McPartland would come in during the week of the festival. I actually talked to Cleo Lane and John Dankworth at the coffee shop. When did you get to the Twin Cities? I moved here in 87. So, you did. Yeah. You've been here a nice long time. Yeah. 30 years? Yeah, but Plus. try starting a freelance career as a musician over when you're 37 years old. It takes a while to get launched, you know, but I've met some wonderful people. You know, I got onto the morning show right away at NPR, where they still had lots of live musicians on. You know, it seemed like there was enough of a, of a welcoming music community that a person could make a go of it. Driving one morning, uh, I heard on Jazz 88, it was Lucia, and she was talking about this gig she was going to do for the Jazz Society, and it was all Brazilian stuff. And I'm like, oh, I mean, I don't know who this is, but I got to find out. But anyway, I had this little gig. I was booked as the bass player, and I just met Lucia. You know, we're doing standards, and on the break, I said, hey, Lucia, you know, you sound great, and if we do some Brazilian stuff, you know, maybe I could play some guitar, because I know some Brazilian stuff, too. And so I get out the guitar and play for her, and she's like, whoa, wait a minute. We found each other that way. Soon after that, we started playing some more gigs, and then eventually did that recording, Enter You, Enter Love. At Ruby's, um, I met a lot of people, and one of the people I met at Ruby's was Anita Ruth. So I played for her, and then eventually, she's a musical director, so I mean, I ended up playing um, in her pit at the Children's Theater and at okay. the Guthrie, all over the place. And you meet a lot of different people in that world. You've been an educator for a really long time. You're affiliated with a couple of colleges right now, right? I'm only at McAllister right now. I was at St. Thomas for a long time, and okay. I was at St. Kate's. I just kind of drove around in St. Paul all day, <laughs> uh, bringing jazz knowledge to the needy. Um, so, uh, and there's a lot of need out there. Um, I don't think I'm as articulate about Composing, it, it's a mystery to me, but um, the first song I ever wrote uh, I was in high school uh, was a bossa nova. And just because, that was my favorite music. And uh, my brother wrote it down for me, and, and I still have that copy of it at home. Oh, frame it. But I just always have written, and mostly I write for the band that I'm in. If I'm in a band, I want to write something that people can do, which would be fun. One of the important people that I met when I moved to town was Carol Celine. And uh, Carol Celine had this band called Naima, all women's quintet, quartet, uh, depending. And, you know, through her, I met Mary Louise, and I met Laura. Those were the piano players. Mary Louise Knudsen yeah. and Laura Cagliani. Yeah. Um, I just love their playing, and so along the way met Clea Galliano. I didn't hardly know her, but she asked me if I would play Cavaquino on her her debut album here. Wait um, a minute, you got to explain what that is. Oh, the Cavaquino. Hawaiians call that instrument a ukulele, but its Portuguese name is a Cavaquino, and it it uh, has steel strings on it. They strum it like a ukulele. Um, use it for the harmony instrument in samba. Do you have a really high point in your career 
I mean, I've had so many, but there is a gig that, that stands out, and that was a gig I played with Clea. Uh, she asked me to play with her at this recorder summer camp. From the first note to the last note, the connection between us and the music never wavered. It just got deeper and deeper the whole time. And there's a lot of musicians that, that you just have an instant um, soul connection to. That can happen all the time. You know, when I played in this cover band in the 70s in Kansas City, we, every once in a while we would play a tune and where all of a sudden the band, it felt like it physically lifted off the bandstand. It just would go to some other place and you just would hang on for dear life that it would stay like that for a while challenging time. Do you have one that comes to your mind that was a tough time for you in this business? The toughest time for this business is when I moved to the Twin Cities. You know, I just didn't really know anybody. In retrospect, that didn't last all that long. It, it all worked out. That was a harder go because I had come from a place where I had a whole bunch of gigs and all of a sudden I was hardly playing at all. So, you know. What advice can you give the young set want to play jazz? <laughs> well, first of all, I would say uh, don't limit yourself to jazz. If they can look in their heart and you know just follow the path that makes them feel best about themselves as a musician, then that's probably the right thing to do. You know. And the other thing I would say is that unless you're positive you cannot do the gig, say yes because you never know who you're going to meet. You know, I've played tons of church gigs. I've played tons of country gigs. I've played all kinds of gigs, you know, and tons of theater gigs. And So you learned and you connected by saying yes? Yeah, yeah, just say yeah. <laughs> Joan Griffith, thank you so much. You are listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends 2023 with honorees Denny Momberg, Joan Griffith, Douglas R. Ewart, and Butch Thompson. Composer, saxophonist, and educator Douglas R. Ewart is our next Minnesota jazz legend. Originally from Jamaica, Douglas made his way to the Midwest and eventually to the Twin Cities by not only playing music, but directly studying and teaching the ways in which composition can include more than just music. In his artistic life, he weaves together multidisciplinary works through music, art, and the spoken word. Douglas has been recognized by the Bush and Rockefeller Foundations and the National Endowment for the Arts for his creative works worldwide. And he continues to be a source of inspiration through his expression of music, art, and philosophy. Help me welcome to the stage Mr. Douglas R. Ewart, ladies and gentlemen. born in Kingston, Jamaica, very close to the Caribbean Sea. I was born in my maternal grandmother's house. Pretty much stayed in that house till I left Jamaica, but always that was central. My mother, her sister, my father, my siblings, people stuck together and it was really a beautiful way to grow up. You learn to appreciate things in a different way when you grow up in that kind of environment. 
I didn't realize until much later that my mom played the piano. My mother's brother was an accomplished violinist and saxophone player. My influence are many. For example, we grew up when radio was far more eclectic. We only had one main station. You heard everything. I heard Patti Page, young Dolly Parton, Louis Armstrong. I saw Louis Armstrong. My mother took me to see Louis Armstrong. But one of the most impactful experiences I had was a man named Count Ozzy and the Mystic Revelation of Rastafari. They played a set of drums called Nyabingi. And Nyabingi is the liturgical music of the Rastas of Jamaica. This drumming that I'm speaking of is influenced by a drumming called Kumina. And Kumina is a Afro-Christianity kind of drumming. And along with the syncretism of African philosophy with Christian philosophy, so the Rasta movement was very crucial and central to Jamaica's development politically and philosophically and culturally. I had a cousin that had an enormous collection and I read all the albums and one of the biggest influences I had at that time was Dizzy Gillespie. I heard Charles Mingus, Clifford Brown, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, then my father's mother loved Franz Liszt and Bach. So this kind of openness about music, it was all played on the, the station. You had one kind of programming after another. I knew I wanted to play, and I thought I'd love to play the trumpet. But in Jamaica at that time, the schools I attended, there was singing of folk songs, but there wasn't any instrumental music being taught. The first things that I tried to imitate was playing drums. I didn't have a drum, so we used various types of tin cans and imitate the rhythms of Nyabingi. There was a dim view of Rasta movement when I was coming up as a boy. It was Rasta were seen the growing of your hair, being against colonialism, because black people were suffocated by these things. My mom came to the U.S. and eventually sent for her children, and I came to Chicago in 1963. I was a dropout from school. All right. oh. <laughs> when I came, I went back to school, and after graduating, I bought a saxophone, and I started teaching myself. I bought that instrument in July of 67. By that fall, I began taking lessons, and that's, as they say, that's history. Yes. <laughs> um, after that, I acquired a flute and a clarinet. I had steeped myself in listening in Jamaica, so I was very familiar with Coltrane, Gene Ammons, Charles Parker. My cousin had all of those recordings, so when I came here, I now was more interested in the work of somebody like Charles Mingus and what Sun Ra was doing. In the area where I lived, there was a group that was just formed in 1965, AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Oh, and nice. they had a school 
And that's where I began my formal study of music. Joseph Jarman, who was one of my main mentors, was also doing theater and dance and poetry, multimedia pieces. So that impacted me a great deal. Actually, when I went to high school, I had studied to be a tailor. I didn't study music. I graduated from high school. After maybe a summer of pursuing the saxophone, I came home and told my parents that I was going to do music. And they were a little bit like skeptical because they were concerned about earning a living. This is Minnesota jazz legend 2023 Douglas R. Ewart. Then your world expanded. You know, what that did was it spurred me to go and study at other places. I went to Loop College. There were some incredible teachers there. You know, I studied Palestrina and Bach and all that. And then I also went to Vandercook, which was a school designed for educators. And I also studied electronic music at Governor State University. What was it that brought you to the Twin Cities? I got married to Janice Lane Ewart. We met in Chicago. I met her in 77. We got married in 83. She got a job working for Arts Midwest. She came up. I was still in Chicago. We had not too long returned from Japan, and I got a fellowship to study Japanese culture. And when I studied shakuhachi flute, both making and playing. This one I made from bone. You know, they came to Japan around 6th century, and when the samurais could no longer carry weapons, the flute would double both as an instrument and as a weapon. You came up here after your wife Janice did. Did you already know musicians from this area? Sam Favors and Gene Adams, they had a band. I sat in with their band. John Devine had Impark. I started playing with them, and I started doing my own concerts here. We formed a group called Nomads. One memorable concert was with Marcus Belgrave, who played with Ray Charles. He played with Charles Mingus and had him do a trumpet duet of him and Gene Adams, and they told stories about coming from the South. Eighty-nine, I was already here. Ninety, I began teaching. I didn't start teaching at the Art Institute till I left Chicago. And so I traveled back and forth for about 20-something years. I was playing in Chicago. I was playing here. I was traveling to play in New York, Michigan, different places. I was teaching for Compass. I did a semester at Metro State. I was giving private lessons at MacPhail. You know, you're mixing all of these things, but they say, Necessity is the mother of invention. (laughs) There's no separation for me about the drive to create. I play music, I make instruments, 
I make sculpture. I make costumes. I do paintings. I do sound sculptures. This instrument is called the George Floyd Bunstaff. These are bunt pan. They were made for cooking, but we also cook sound on it. When George Floyd was murdered, it uh, inspired me to finish the instrument. I was there sitting in the shop one day, and I was like, bunt pans, bunt in baseball, B-U-N-D-T for the pans, B-U-N-T for the play. And for those that are not familiar with the play, it's a sacrificial play because the player just kind of sticks the bat out there, let the ball hit it, and then typically those people get to run to make another base or to go to home plate. Whether deliberately or inadvertently, George Floyd bunted with his life so that we could be awakened. When I decided I was gonna be a musician, the question then became, how are you gonna make your living? I played in rock and roll bands. That wasn't enough to pay my rent. I had to supplement that. How did I do that? I had studied tailoring. I made bags and purses from leather. I had started making flutes, so I would sell flutes at the art fairs along with my leather goods. Then at night, I would go and play. I also began doing work for an organization in Chicago named Urban Gateways. And what they did was they sent artists into the schools. You find creative ways to support yourself. It's just a way of life. When did you begin a college career that you became a professor? I used to go and be a guest artist at different schools and a professor at the School of the Art Institute was going on sabbatical, and he asked me to take one of his classes. I did a class, and it went so well that I was then asked if I wanted to do a course. And that's how my career as a professor began. How do you decide what you're going to do next? You know, you're possessed by different things. <laughs> it's the gratitude for being alive. It's the gratitude for all the people that have invested in me. Those are the things that drive me. Nature. I'm a fanatic about recycling. Many of the instruments I make from crutches and bunk pans, these are things that people would sometimes discard. It's about life. And I'm embroiled in living and making myself interesting to me. <laughs> One of my recent high points, writing a piece for the AACM, is Mars Blues. And it was played by the AACM large ensemble, Red Hills. And it's going to actually be played by Zeitgeist. But it's about Jamaica. One of my recent performances was when Ice played some of my new pieces, Truth is Power, songs and stories of hope. <laughs> and then I did a piece not long ago with the Now Orchestra from Vancouver. I worked with 36 musicians. I had everyone go out and video 
things that were of importance to them. And then we got a great videographer to put all of this together with music. You've given a lot of great advice. How about the young musicians who want to become a jazz musician? First thing is follow your passion, study your craft, learn from those that came before you, write music, work with dancers, work with writers, work with playwrights. I'm saying don't limit yourself. There are no boundaries for you. You can always learn from others. That's what I carry with me all the time. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is the late pianist and clarinetist Richard Butch Thompson. Throughout Butch's life, he was drawn to the rhythm of traditional jazz from a very young age, eventually becoming one of the foremost leading experts on that style of music. His career brought him to the highly acclaimed Hall Brothers Band as a teenager, and after a few trips to New Orleans, he claimed this style as his own. Butch also became the pianist and music director of a Prairie Home Companion alongside his college pal Garrison Keeler, and he stayed there for over a decade. Butch was invited to host a radio show, and it lasted for over 25 years. It was called Jazz Originals, and it was on Jazz 88. And now, in his own words... Hello, I'm Butch Thompson. The rhythm is the thing that always got me since I was a very, very small child. I think before I knew enough to talk or to distinguish between what kind of records my dad was playing, he was playing jazz records around the house, and I was, I was hooked even before I could speak. And one of my earliest memories is sitting on the living room floor and looking up at my mother, who was playing on a turquoise upright piano. She had painted that piano, and it was turquoise colored. And this was piano music that got me when I was probably something like a year old. I have a clear memory of seeing her doing that. from a small town called Marine on St. Croix. It's on the St. Croix River here in Minnesota. My mother found a teacher for me. Uh, this person had never taught piano before at that time. Um, from there, I went to a, an ex-concert pianist in a nearby town of Stillwater, a woman who actually taught me a lot. Just by her example, she'd sit down and, and play whatever it was we were working on in an extremely dramatic fashion. And she had a lot of flair, and that really showed me something, uh, probably more than the technique that she tried to put across. It was just, you have to have style. Actually, my sort of conversion experience almost when I was in the seventh grade and played in the junior high school talent show. This was uh, the worst case of stage fright I think I've ever had. I've never been anywhere near as upset as that again. But the audience uh, was the best audience in many ways uh, that you could imagine because what I did was play a version of Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock as my piece in front of the junior high school audience. And they were knocked out. This was top 40 stuff. I had known that they were going to find it unusual and I thought they might like it, but I had no idea that they were going to have this kind of explosive reaction. And in some ways, maybe that's why I'm a professional musician because of that experience. It really confirmed me, at least in my ambition, which, I, and in fact, I don't remember a time when I didn't think that it would be a glamorous profession. I think. Part of it was probably that they were so surprised that I did something like that. The music of the 50s and uh, the early rock and roll hits were actually not that different uh, stylistically from some of the things I'd been interested in uh, learning to play 
uh, Boogie Woogie particularly. It was a kind of piano music which I was very interested in. And it was no trouble at all to adapt the music of Bill Haley and uh, Elvis Presley and Little Richard and Fats Domino. Both Richard and Fats, of course, were piano players anyway, to this Boogie Woogie style. To help tell Butch's story, here's Tony Bailiff, leader of the Southside Aces. He would say, I was always so nervous every time I ever played, but I just knew that I wanted to be a performer. And so that led him into that world. And then eventually he's at the U of M. He's sort of delving into, and this is on clarinet now, some of the jazz, but um, kind of more along the lines of Benny Goodman. And so he's playing in this little University of Minnesota kind of jazz combo that he put together. And somehow they got hired to play the intermission of a Hall Brothers dance at Kaufman Memorial Union. And this is the quote he says, we were supposedly hired because the Hall Brothers didn't want to play the twist contest. (laughs) So then Charlie DeVore and Bill Evans recognized in him and his clarinet playing, hmm, you know, he sounds a little like Benny Goodman, but I think there's some potential there. At that point in their history, they needed to find a clarinetist because their original clarinetist, Dick Ramberg, was leaving the band to further his studies. And so they did what Charlie DeVore fondly calls, you know, the brainwashing. He would invite Butch over to his house and send him to the attic where there was a record player with George Lewis records and all the records of the New Orleans clarinetists. And, um, and then they would feed Butch, you know, young, hungry Butch. <laughs> and so he'd get a home-cooked meal. And, and, he, and he just started to absorb this music oh and my. eventually go to rehearsals with the Hall brothers. And eventually they actually got him um, playing. And he was at Brady's Bar on Hennepin Avenue. Stan Hall, the leader of the band, signed some sort of agreement with the bar owner to be able to play there even though he was underage. Oh and, my and Butch goodness. just, he was in heaven because he was getting paid to play what jazz year? music. What year do you think that was? This was the spring of 1962. Charlie DeVore told Butch, you have to go to New Orleans. And so, as Butch said, It was decided I should go to New Orleans. (laughs) So he asked Charlie, well, Charlie, how much money does that cost to go to New Orleans? Okay, so imagine, this is June of 1962. So Charlie sort of looks off into the distance, and he's doing calculations, and and he's saying, okay, let's see, the place to stay, the food, and transportation down there, $75 will do it. Now, did he stay with this band? Though they would have other clarinetists maybe play with the band for a short time or something like that. He was always going to be a Hall brother. You're listening to Butch Thompson, Minnesota Jazz Legend 2023. A major turning point was my first encounter with the New Orleans musicians at Preservation Hall. I really can't emphasize enough how amazed I was to run across musicians who played the way they did. 
One of the things that is perhaps attractive about the music to someone of my background is that it is such a free expression of emotion and such a natural outpouring of things that perhaps not put into words that often, but we do do it in music, certainly the, the music of the blacks in New Orleans. Butch Thompson was a Jelly Roll Morton expert, releasing his first album project in 1964 of Jelly Roll's work and also giving his expertise to a Broadway production of Jelly's Last Jam. But Butch also loved to play the reflective pieces. When I first started learning this stuff, you know, I was still a teenager. And at that time, I was much more interested in the flashy side of it, fast playing and you know, quick left hand and impressing people with virtuosity or something. As the years have gone by, I've gotten more and more concerned with lyricism, I think, and reflectiveness, as you say, which is a good word. So that nowadays, if I'm going to sit down and just play for relaxation, I'll probably play something pretty rather than something fast. Uh, Garrison Keeler and I were classmates, more or less, uh, at the University of Minnesota back in the early 60s, and that's where we met. Later on, he started the show, actually, I believe, in 1974. He did some of the first radio broadcasts, which were uh, similar to what the show would become. And I was asked to be a guest frequently after 1974 and took over sort of the house piano player job by a process of elimination, so that by the time it became a national program. I was the piano player and I had my trio there. I invited Butch's wife, Mary Ellen, to tell us some stories about Butch's career. Did you ever go on a fun gig with him that you think maybe was a highlight for Butch? He was hired to do a residency and a concert in Cairo. I think that was a highlight. It was just such a great time. And then he was invited back to play with the Cairo Symphony, which was an amazing experience because there was a huge language barrier, but the music was the language that they exchanged and they understood. I just read a letter that he wrote to his parents, because, you know, he's only 18, so he's writing home. And he said, I got to sit with George Lewis. And George gave me all kinds of advice about playing the clarinet. And he gave me a couple of his reads. And then he got to not only hear George play, but he got to hear George do a recording, I think. That was it. I mean, that sealed the deal for him. Imagine, at the age of 18, he knew his path. I mean, that was it. When he was retiring Jazz Originals, and they had, it was at 25 years, and they had a celebration at Crooners for him, and they asked the Southside Aces if we would play that day, and then have Butch be able to both play piano and clarinet. And to my intense satisfaction, <laughs> he had fun. <laughs> he liked playing with us, and he wanted to do it again. At the point of that 25-year anniversary of the show, he was still in full function. But then from that point on, it's you know he started to show the decline that dementia brings. But it was just so beautiful. He was still good at what 
was amazing was I could watch him, and this is the miracle of how music works in our brains, even with dementia. He would find new ways to express songs he'd played probably thousands of times. So then we kept doing it and he felt protected. He was so important to us. We did a recording with him during those years. We have documentation of that sort of path. You know, he did this one song, How Long Blues, and you can hear examples of it through his whole career and the different ways he played it. And the way he played it on that recording, that is just beautiful. You're listening to Butch Thompson, Minnesota Jazz Legend 2023. I want to uh, just take a moment and invite someone very special up to hand this award to help me welcome to the stage Butch's wife, Mary Ellen. On behalf of Jazz 88 in the Minnesota community, I would like to give you this trophy, except this from us. Thank you, Patty. This is so wonderful. Um, first of all, I want to thank Tony for keeping music in Butch's life as long as possible. That was beautiful. You know, it was a dream of Butch's for a long time to have his own radio show. And KBM made it possible. Thank you so much. For over 20 years, he was able to share his passion and knowledge for the music with his radio audience, and it meant so much to him. And thank you, Patty. If Butch were here, I'm sure he would say, this was halfway decent of you. <laughs> and that was his highest praise, I want you to know. Mary Ellen, thank you. Thank you, Butch Thompson, for all of your incredible music. You've been listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends 2023 with honorees Denny Malmberg, Joan Griffith, Douglas R. Ewart, and Butch Thompson. The featured musicians were backed by the house band, Ted Goutbaut on piano, Anthony Cox on bass, Phil Hay on drums, and also joining Douglas R. Ewart was Davus Saru on drums. Special thanks to pianist Dan Chenard and clarinetist Tony Bailiff for their contributions during the live concert. Excerpts of Butch Thompson's segment were provided with permission by Twin Cities Public Television's Newsnight Minnesota, and by Wise Fresh Air, produced in Philadelphia by Y and distributed by NPR. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Scott Melchow from Creation Audio and Plus Six Productions. Special thanks to Minnesota History Center's 3M Theater for the use of their stage for the live concert portion. Executive producer and host is Patty Peterson. Minnesota Jazz Legends 2023 is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and produced by Jazz 88 KBEM.